0: When we make first contact with aliens, will we meet the challenge with wisdom or with violence?
1: It's interesting that as a species, we claim to be so interested in these first contact stories where we have contact with another species, an alien species usually, when really we've failed in so many ways to have contact with our own species. and possibly with other human species that existed on the planet before, but taking it away from theoretical speculation, we failed almost at every instance of two cultures meeting one another to do a very simple thing, which is to have that meeting consist of the exchange of knowledge, right? And instead, those meetings have often been violent and quite usually destructive or even completely destructive for one of the two parties. And so one of the questions I was sort of dealing with in the book is, Are we open enough as a species? Do we listen enough to others to actually communicate with them? Are we capable of such a thing?
0: That's Ray Naylor. We talk with him about his novel, The Mountain and the Sea. It was named by Slate Book Review as one of the best books of 2022. Then we remember Victor Nowoski, the longtime editor of The Nation magazine, He died January 24th at the age of 90. We listen back to my 2006 interview with him about his memoir, A Matter of Opinion. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. And hey, do you know you can go to writersvoice.net to find extra content with links, book excerpts, and extended interviews. We've all heard the classic question, is there other intelligent life in the universe? But what about other intelligent life right here on Earth? Of course, we're already learning about the many forms of intelligence among the other animals we share the world with, from ants to whales. And some say plants also have consciousness and intelligence. But we're really asking, is there any other species that matches us in complexity of thought and creativity? Could we be on the brink of inventing that species with the development of advanced artificial intelligence? And how would we respond to other intelligences, whether natural or human-made? Ray Naylor explores these questions in his brilliant and beautifully written novel of speculative fiction, The Mountain and the Sea. In a world where ocean life is under threat of extinction from human activity, a species of octopus with highly evolved intelligence, octopus sapiens, if you will, is discovered. One of the discoverers is the world's only fully aware and self-conscious android, a being banished to an island marine refuge in the condao Peninsula of Vietnam after being rejected by the rest of humanity. Naylor's novel questions society's assumptions about human superiority and the right to dominate other species. It urges us to understand that we are connected to all the life around us, neither above or below it, but in a web of equal relationship to it. Ray Naylor's critically acclaimed short fiction has appeared in many magazines and anthologies. For nearly half his life, he's lived and worked outside the U.S. in the Foreign Service and the Peace Corps, including a stint as Environment, Science, Technology, and Health Officer at the U.S. Consulate in Ho Chi Minh City. He currently serves as the international advisor to the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The Mountain and the Sea is his first full-length novel. Ray Naylor, welcome to Writer's Voice.
1: Thank you. It's uh, it's really great to be here with you.
0: This is just such a wonderful, wonderful novel. A profound novel, one that really can change lives, I think. And that's not hyperbole, because it really gets to the heart of some of the most important questions that we as human beings are facing now, really have always faced, but even now with a greater urgency. And I I just want to start out by asking you about your Other job, um, you're an international advisor to the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries in uh, NOAA. Is that right in the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I'm actually on a detail there, so this is this job is somewhat temporary. I've been there, we've been with them since August, and I'll be with them until next August, and then I'll move on to another position at uh, George Washington University. But it's been wonderful being at NOAA and getting to uh, talk to scientists every day and, and work on these real uh, and very important issues uh, related to marine protected areas and marine sanctuaries.
0: Yes. Yeah, so I just wondered whether, you know, your novel, The Mountain and the Sea, has a marine sanctuary at, at its core. Um, did your work there inspire this novel or did this novel <laughs> inspire you to take that job?
1: Yeah, so interestingly enough, I think it was the novel that inspired me to take the job. Um, the story behind the novel is that I had been in Vietnam working as the environment, science, technology, and health officer at the consulate in Ho Chi Minh City. And I was there working on uh, a lot of national parks issues and uh, species preservation and that kind of thing. And that work took me out to the Condao archipelago. So that was back in 2011, 2013, and since then, that place had really stayed with me, and I had I had remained, you know, in, I had remained with the idea that I was going to set something there, that I would write about it, um, but it wasn't until I started writing the book that this opportunity came up, and I think I was almost finished with the book, or finished with it, this opportunity at NOAA came up, to be international advisor there for a while, and I jumped at the chance I thought it was really a piece of amazing serendipity that this was coming up right at the time the book would be coming out.
0: Wow, it is serendipity, so give us the lay of the land here and in the time and place of this island this this island uh, in Condal in the archipelago
1: so it's the book is set in the near future, kind of undefined distance from our modern Time, but I think if you calculate according to a few different you know, hints, you get a sense of about when it might be. And it's set on the Condao Archipelago, which is this amazing um, place in off the coast of Vietnam. Uh, it is set though in a time when there isn't a Vietnam like there is today, just as there aren't many other nation states that we might think of, but the political system has become a very different thing. I think that the the book tries to strike a balance between suggesting future scenarios and dealing with a lot of real world issues, and we can maybe get into that in a bit more detail later. But I wanted to set it at a time when I could reflect in some depth on things that are happening in the world today, while also suggesting some ways forward or some ways things might get worse or better. Or both. Or both. Correct.
0: Yes, and the book's central theme is our relationship, our connection, in fact, our openness to connection with the world around us and the other species that inhabit it. um talk about that motivating theme of this book for you It's centrality
1: yeah i I think i've said I've said this before in conversations that I've had about the book. It's interesting that, as a species we claim to be so interested in these first contact stories where we have contact with another species an alien species usually when really we've failed in so many ways to have contact with our own species and possibly with other human species that existed on the planet before but taking it away from theoretical speculation we have failed almost at every instance of two cultures meeting one another to do a very simple thing, which is to have that meeting consist of the exchange of knowledge, right? And instead, those meetings have often been violent and quite usually destructive, or even completely destructive for one of the two parties. And so one of the questions I was sort of dealing with in the book is, are we open enough as a species? Do we listen enough to others to actually communicate with them? Are we capable of such a thing?
0: And so, put that in this this book. This is a sanctuary, a marine sanctuary on Kandao, uh an island that has been set up for the purpose of preserving turtle species and other fish, uh, because the rest of the ocean is being scraped. Of its life by these industrial ships. Now, this is already happening. I mean, I've spoken to Carl Safina, the marine biologist, and that's the word he uses, you know, they've, they're scraping the ocean of its life. So tell us a little bit about what we are facing, what the world is, what the oceans are facing in the timeline of this book.
1: Well, I think the oceans are facing a continuation of what's going on now. And you really, you really hit it this is happening, you know, as we sit here, as we, you know, as we speak to one another, as people listen to this, this is already occurring. The vast industrial search for animal proteins is scraping the oceans clean of life. And uh, many species are, of course, endangered. Others are are extinct already or, ne- or nearly so. And a lot of things are happening. One of the threads of the novel takes place on one of these ships. And uh, the people on the ship are slaves, basically kidnapped and forced to work on this ship, which is controlled by an AI. And I point out to people that the AI control of the ship, that is the full automated control of the ship, is the only invention. Most of that narrative emerges out of oral histories and articles um, written about or in co- uh, cooperation with people who were enslaved on fishing vessels in our real world
0: exactly and it 's really a terrifying a, a dystopic view, but this is not really a dystopic novel um, it as you say and you know explores the connection. Being open to connections with our own species, but particularly with two other alien species—one created by humans, that is, Evrim the android—and the other is Octopus Sapiens. First, tell us about Evrim.
1: So, Evrim is the world's first artificial conscious being, and um, the, the world's first, say, android. And maybe the world's last in this world. So the, the world that the book takes place in has reacted strongly against having an android that has claims to being a conscious uh, being. And one of the reasons that Evram is on the archipelago is to protect them from the uh, possible repercussions of people's rage at uh, something like them having been, having been created. So that's, that's one side of the story. And then they are taking part directly in the communication with the species of octopuses. And the octopus species is a species that has emerged into symbolic communication. And I think this is something that I really want to stress. What I'm not saying in the book is that there is another sentient species out there because that would be... That would imply that species were not sentient. In fact, I believe that many, many other species are sentient and have an awareness of self. Um, to some degree, perhaps all life has some form of self-awareness. But when you talk about sentience, that certainly extends beyond the human. So it's not that the species is sentient. It's that they have emerged into symbolic communication. And symbolic communication is really what makes human beings special. It's this complex language language. That gives us the ability to tell stories, pass information on in really complicated ways between generations, etc.
0: This is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. We're talking with speculative fiction writer Ray Naylor about his deeply thought-provoking novel, The Mountain and the Sea. It's about what happens when scientists in the near future discover a highly intelligent, and literate species of octopus. Yeah, and you know I found this so interesting because uh, you know, of course human beings first said man is a tool user other animals are not, and of course now we know that octopi uh, use tools and All kinds of birds use tools, (laughs) and I think sometimes even my cat uses tools. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it's it's not about tool using. This idea of symbol using, I really haven't seen before, and I, I found that convincing because I agree with you that all creatures and perhaps more than creatures, plants as well, have sentience and consciousness. So talking about consciousness... That's one of the questions that you ask, what is consciousness? Because the question is posed about Evrim, are they alive? And we say they because they are not gendered. And and there's a wonderful quote from one of the other characters in the book, a book of hers. A single neuron is not conscious of its existence, a network of billions of unconscious neurons is. So talk about this conscious this concept of consciousness
1: I think it's something that I have found incredibly fascinating and it's something that science has so far i think failed to to answer in any sort of convincing way, but something that we're working toward understanding as a species it's 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 a fascinating thing that the thing that is most important to us that is our conscious experience of being alive the way that we feel about life, the the activity of our brains every day is something that is a mystery, a total mystery to us, something that we don't understand at all. We, We understand a lot about how, about what activates perhaps in the brain when thoughts occur. We can map areas of the brain that are responsible for different functions, motor functions, mental functions to a degree, but we really still have not been able to define what it is that create that creates the experience of being alive and how that emerges out of a system of unconscious neurons and cells that are probably if they have any awareness of of self only have a minimal awareness of that so i think i mean the theory that many people have suggested is that it is the activity of the system itself, the entire system that is creating a space within which consciousness exists, but that still fails to be an answer to the the question in some ways. And so what the novel does is propose several different theories about what might be responsible for consciousness, but I don't think that it's the job of of a novel like this to answer questions. I think it's more the job of a book to create an architecture or a space within which you can ask very complex questions and get people thinking a little bit more about the complexities beyond our day-to-day experience.
0: Well, one of the things that occurred to me is, you know, there are other, um, there are drones uh, in, in the novel as well, or other, you know, AI inventions, but Ephraim to me, distinguishes themselves most by their emotion. So, is emotions then part of this consciousness? I mean, you know, it's not just something humans have, of course, all beings have.
1: I've heard it suggested that feelings are the glue that make thoughts relevant, have any sort of relevance for us. And without feelings, we wouldn't be able to have a sense of relevance or really thought at all, and that feelings are the driver, in many ways, of the act of thinking. And I think there's something to that. I think there's this idea that the body is this feedback, you know, I hesitate to say mechanism, because I don't like the mechanistic metaphors, but the the body is, is involved in a loop of feedback from the world to itself and back in the world, and that thoughts are really actions. In the body, and they're very physical. They're ingrained in a physical way in the pattern of our neurons, but and they and they are fired physically in the activity of our neurons. But they also initiate physical responses inside us. And I think that we can all recognize if we quiet ourselves down and consider our thought processes that we feel when we think, and that feeling and thinking are really synonymous. That feeling might be at a low level. It's not love or rage or any of the high level feelings that we might get in a, in a spike of feeling, but it's always there, this sense of feeling. And I, I do think there's something to the idea that without it, there may not in fact be such a thing as as being alive or being able to hold a thought in a mind.
0: So we can, we can uh, change what Descartes said and say, I feel, therefore I am.
1: I mean, I think we could say <laughs> I, always, I always joke actually that um the main theme of my writing is um it's more complicated than that. And I realize that's not probably a best-selling theme. Uh <laughs> but <laughs> I would say if I were if I were going to rewrite Descartes, I would say we are embedded within a system, therefore we are. Uh, feeling is a part of that embeddedness in the system.
0: Yes, and that's really the other aspect of this book. In fact, one of the characters and I'm going to ask you about her now, tell us about Ha. She says, you have to make a mutual world. I mean, that's part of that embeddedness. So tell us tell us about these other two characters, uh, human characters. There's Ha, the biologist and then there's Dr. Meneva Dottir-Chan. First, let's go to Ha.
1: So, Ha Nguyen, who's the main protagonist of the main storyline, I think is, for me, first of all, this representation of so many of the really extraordinarily powerful people that I worked with in Vietnam on conservation issues and on the environment. So in that way, I have this real affection. For Ha, because Ha for me brings back memories of so many people. And just like in a dream, quite often I think characters that, that writers produce are this uh kind of compression of many different um elements, both of themselves and of other people. But Ha struggles with a feeling of separateness from the world, which is a feeling I think that we all struggle with. And what she proposes. And then I think finally she proposes it and then finally begins to understand it better herself, is that in order for communication to occur, occur, we have to form a mutual context. And that mutual context is going to be based on empathy. And without empathy and understand, which is the core of understanding, there is no understanding. There is no possibility for communication. And I think this is something that carries over into our human day-to-day interactions. But I think it's also something that we recognize as the, the way we communicate with animals too. Animals are really woven into human culture, right? Um, our pets, our, um, our birds in our urban environments, even everything, you know, our horses, our domestic animals, the animals we exploit for food, et cetera. But one of the ways that we communicate with our uh, pets, for example, is through empathy. We seek to understand their needs. We look at them and try to determine what it is we want for, from them. We test it by granting something. And when when that turns out to be the thing that they want, we're gratified that communication has occurred. We we interact with our animals and, and have a sort of language that we use to communicate with them. But I think that language is very much based on empathy. And so we recognize that. Maybe the other thing that we are starting to recognize as a, as a culture is that when empathy dies, that is when you become so alienated from other people and so willing to or able to objectify them uh, that you have no empathy for them left whatsoever, communication with them becomes completely impossible. And I think that's something that humankind has been shown many times in its history, but the internet is really demonstrating for for us today.
0: Yes, and, and I think it's also a question of survival. Uh, you know, Ha also says, I think she says, and maybe it was the, as the other character, we must understand not only how we organize and perceive the world, but how the world sees us. This really struck me because I thought immediately of the pandemic lockdown, when so many animals, wild animals, came out to fill up the spaces that we had vacated, and we watched them from our windows and from our webcams and from our, you know, from our computers, and we realized, in many cases, for the first time, we realized that they were there. What did you did you experience that also as a kind of wonder?
1: It really was extraordinary to to watch that happen uh, during COVID. I was um, during the peak of the pandemic. Because I hesitate to say there is no pandemic anymore. I think we're just at this at this point where, as a society, we've drawn a line through it and decided that we're just not going to address uh, what's going on. But there certainly is the disease is still there, um, if even if our attention to it has has been averted by other things. During the peak of that um, isolation, I was in Kosovo actually, and Kosovo is interesting. Because Kosovo has more corvids than I have ever seen anywhere in my life. There are very few songbirds in our in our neighborhood, which was near this little park in Pristina. But there was every kind of corvid you could think of, from different kinds of crows, including you know hooded crows, the typical crows that you would see in, in in America. Also ravens and rooks and jackdaws and just every species that you could think of. And they would make this during the the sort of peak of COVID. They had completely taken over this park to the degree where you could hear them from miles away, <laughs> communicating with one another. And then when they would fly in uh, to the park in the evening from the mountains or other places where they were foraging, it was just this constant stream of birds in the sky. And it it was they were so dominant in the environment that it really was a reminder of how much is in the world that is not human that is intertwined with our environments right because these were thousands upon thousands of animals living in a small public park um and yeah i I think that i don't know if covid taught us that lesson because i wonder if we'll learn it i think learning is a different thing from from having been taught right but um it is is extraordinary that the world sort of came alive and showed itself uh, to us. And I think it was a powerful moment for a lot of people to realize how much was there.
0: Yes, yes, exactly. If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Ray Naylor about his wonderful novel, The Mountain in the Sea. Now, we haven't talked about the octopi or the octopus all that much yet. I mean, there are, and, and I was really struck that there are really two entities or types of, uh, that are similar to each other that you portray. One is the octopus, this, this super intelligent octopus species, and the other are these Buddhist drones. So, what is the link between them, and, and why did you create those AI creatures that are actually like octopi?
1: Yeah, so I I wanted to in this book and I I'm not sure if I was conscious of this when I was when I was writing the book itself but I ended up I think trying to present as many different forms of consciousness as I could as many different ways of being alive or perhaps not being alive completely uh or being on the margins of some kind of living existence as I could in one place, in order to have this sense of comparison between them. And the, the auto monks, I think are what you're you're referring to, one of the things you're referring to, and then also these drones and this, this sort of drone system that's being used by the Tibetan state. Um, this was a concept that I had explored a little bit of the holon, which is uh, just this idea that nested within these, structures of emergence is a a system of control um one of the interesting things about the octopus one of the really fascinating things about the octopus besides the fact that such a complex mind has invo- has evolved in an animal that has no spine and that is a mollusk and whose common ancestor with us is 500 million years from us and which is just so extraordinarily different Um, is the the way that the neural structure of the octopus informs its existence the octopus brain is not a top-down structure like a human brain although our structure is less top-down and we like to give it credit for the octopus really has neurons suffused throughout its limbs and its body and in in a sense i think if you wanted to try to imagine what it might be like to be an octopus, you might try to imagine when you are completely immersed in a familiar physical activity. So let's say driving. I think everyone's had the experience, somewhat startling, of kind of waking up into consciousness, having been behind the wheel of a car for many minutes (laughs) without having been aware of the act of driving. And the octopus brain is essentially structured, seems to be structured a lot like this. The arms will just do things, explore things on their own, be going about their business in the world and looking for things. and, And the octopus will be walked around in a sense by its limbs. And then when it senses something startling, it will collect its consciousness into that central brain and take over. In the same way that when you're sort of, passively driving a car and not paying much attention and someone swerves in front of you you suddenly become fully conscious we would say and alert and that's i think a really fascinating thing and the drones are my my idea is that the the tibetan drones somewhat mimic that idea that instead of being drones per se they sort of live their own existences they Go out and explore, and when the controller of them wants to, they take them over.
0: Yeah, I just thought that that was really striking because you would almost, you're almost thinking uh, as reading the novel that only the Tibetans would be, ca- or Buddhists would be capable of creating something like this because the emphasis in Buddhism is the connectedness of all things.
1: Yeah and I I really played on that idea of the connectedness the interconnectedness that de- we call dependent co-arising of all things. It's something that I think we in the West are starting to appreciate much better. We would would refer to nearly the same sense of the world as general systems theory. They would refer to it as dependent co-arising, but what it is is the idea that there is nothing independent of everything. Or anything else. That there is no person independent of the world and no world independent of your mind and your perception of the world and all of those things are intertwined. That doesn't mean that there isn't a physical world out there. It means that your ability to perceive the world and the perceptive mechanisms you're using will form how the world appears to you. So this is easy to imagine. The world is very different to you, of course, than it would be to a bat. Right, or to a fish, or to a shark that has a sensitive elect—you know—perception of electrical fields. They certainly are perceiving a very different world, although we're all living with the same physical facts.
0: We're talking with speculative fiction writer Ray Naylor about his novel *The Mountain and the Sea*. You also have the term the connectome. I wonder if you could describe what that is, as opposed to a neural network.
1: So this is an idea that is. I think, expo- ex- explicated really beautifully by Sebastian Sung, who wrote a book called Connectome. And it's something that I've picked up on in, in my writing, thanks to him and, and his research. So he is a neurologist and researcher in this area. and What the connectome is studying is not neurons per se, but the patterns of connectivity that form the human neural structure. So what they're looking at is not in a sense the individual but the system so i would say that a, a simple explanation for connectome is like the connectome is the neural network if you think of it as a as a system and not as just individual network or individual neurons and this the system of connectivity is really what gives rise I think, and 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 some other people think, to consciousness and life itself. It's the way that we are. It's we live in the inside the pattern, and the pattern is sort of what allows consciousness to be realized.
0: Hmm. It's like um, it's it's almost like matter is a wave. Do you, do you get my my drift there? The idea of of energy and matter being interchangeable in some sense.
1: Yeah, it, it's. I would say. Matter being a wave, I, I think. I think yes. Um, I think in a sense, it's if we're going to attack it from a different angle, let's say a biosemiotic angle. What I would say is, what life is is the exchange of information between agents that are interpreting that information, and that's why symbols are important, and and the field of semiotics is such an important one. Information has to exist within some kind of a a a strata so the the strata which information is using in life to continue to exist is matter right it has to have a body in order to to do what it does but our bodies are not the thing per se that makes us alive what makes us alive is the exchange of information it's this constant stream of communication between ourselves within ourselves within uh, between ourselves and our world Etc. And what's really fascinating about that is if you think about it, the first life that occurred on Earth and you and I having this conversation are connected by a continuous stream of information that has not been broken, because if it had been broken, we wouldn't be here for three and a half billion years. So for three and a half billion years, there has been a continuous processing of signals and a continuous understanding of what to do with those signals within living systems. Totally unbroken. And that's the only reason why anything that is alive today can be alive is because that living thing is connected to that initial transfer of information continuously.
0: A conversation.
1: A conversation.
0: You know, and that really comes down to the heart, I think, of, of. I mean, you know, I don't want to sound over-determined, but the message of this book, because it comes down to, are you going to have a worldview of dominion, which is the one that Western civilization has pushed, versus uh, solidarity? So I wonder if you could talk about that connection and also what it has to do with our technology, because I'm not sure I completely agree with you. I mean, you seem to imply, or maybe it's just one of the characters implies, that technology becomes some kind of independent force that we lose control of. Well, maybe we lose control of it, but we choose to use it in a certain way, Um, whether we use it in a way of dominion or we use it in a way to further solidarity with all other living beings
1: yeah and i I you know I have characters make statements in the book that are not necessarily statements that that I myself agree with as a way of starting or you know continuing arguments or or thought processes um those characters have different points of view from my own, and none of the characters in the book of course matches my own point of view on anything but I'm not telling you anything that you don't know, of course. Uh, any any sophisticated reader understands that uh, an author's point of view shouldn't be mistaken uh, for the point of view of the characters in the, in the book. That being said, I think books do hint largely at, at, at authors' points of view. And yes, I, I really, I do worry about the uses of technology. I'm also aware of the fact that technology shapes our potential for what we do, um, but not in a closed way. So when you have, for example, a tool in your hand, there are many things that you can probably do with it. And that tool opens up a set of opportunities. You as a human being can choose which of those opportunities you're going to exploit. But the tool is also limiting in some ways in what it can and can't do. So for example, if you have an airplane in the world, there are things you can do with an airplane. And one of them is of course, delivering mail and people to other places. And another one is bombing cities flat. And the airplane didn't make us bomb cities flat, but we chose to use the airplane in that manner collectively as a a species. But we also are thrown into these systems where we don't really have a choice quite often as to how technology is used. And I think sometimes we make a mistake in thinking that we have more agency than we do. And we invented somehow these technologies, or we, you know, are participating in deciding how they are used. Whereas quite often we're we're thrown into a situation where we're quite helpless about the way technology is being used on us. And the only real choice we have is maybe how we are using that technology in our personal lives or how we are collectively trying to respond or generate a collective response to the negative aspects of that, of that use. Of that use.
0: And in the less than a minute that we have left, Link that back to the notion of how we might actually take more control by changing the way we perceive our role in this world.
1: I think what we need to do is really take a hard look at reality as it is. And taking a hard look at reality as it is means confronting the failure of the idea of the individual we're not individuals. We're bound to this world. We're bound to one another. We came into this world uh, completely involved in it. And that that sense of involvement and the responsibility that it implies is what I think will lead us to a better society. But if we continue to lie to ourselves and say, I am an individual and I can do whatever I want, then we we will continue to spiral negatively, you know, in in the same way we have been for a long period.
0: Thank you so much, Ray Naylor. This was just a fascinating conversation.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate it.
0: Ray Naylor. Go to writersvoice.net to read some of Ray Naylor's stories and find out more about him. Next up, we remember Victor Nowoski. Stay tuned after the break. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Riannon. Longtime Nation magazine editor Victor Nowoski died January 24th at the age of 90. Nowoski came to the Nation as editor in 1978 and was made publisher and general partner in 1995. He chaired the Columbia Journalism Review and was director of the George Delacorte Center for Magazine Journalism. His book Naming Names won the National Book Award in 1982, and we spoke with him in 2006 about his memoir, A Matter of Opinion. It's a passionate, funny look at his life in journalism and at the field of magazine journalism in general. Let's listen back to that conversation. Well, Victor Nowoski, welcome to Writer's Voice.
2: It's good to be with you.
0: This book, A Matter of Opinion, is just a terrific read. It's really funny, with lots of great stories. And, uh, you know, who says the left is humorless? That's
2: right. I get attacked for being funny in this book, in National Review, for not coming clean as the theoretical Marxist that I'm supposed to be. <laughs>
0: really? What do they say?
2: Well, they, they basically say it's very funny, It's and uh, but why isn't he... In effect, calling for the overthrow of the government by force and violence, which is what his mag his Stalinist magazine does. I mean, basically, that's that's the subtext of the review.
0: It's not okay then to be entertaining if you're on the left, according to the right.
2: That's right. Well, you know, and they don't they don't read it. They don't read the Nation. They don't read the Molly Ivins in the Progressive. They don't read uh, in these times, which has a lot of. Funny stuff in it, so they just r- respond to their own stereotypes. Yeah. Seems to me.
0: Well, a matter of opinion refer- refers to the central theme of your book, which is that it's an exploration through memoir of the genre of journal of opinion. What does it take to put out a journal of opinion? Is that right?
2: Yes. You know, I started. I started on this book many years ago, and I because I thought. The one book that I could do, I had just finished uh, a book about the Hollywood blacklist naming names, and I thought the one book I could do while editing The Nation magazine was a book, uh, a sort of meditation about the role of journals of opinion like The Nation, The New Republic, National Review, in this age of electronic conglomerated journalism. But I found I was overwhelmed by the day-to-day business of putting out our magazine, and then uh, in 1995, my then-publisher, Arthur Carter, made me an offer I should have refused and sold me the magazine for money I didn't have, and I had to go out raising money. So I changed it from a sort of third-person meditation to a first-person misadventure story where it combined the original idea of what is the role of these journals in this kind of age of strange journalism and But it added a, a sort of how-to and a uh, how-to-do-it and a personal set of misadventures in the s- story. So I showed it to my son, who read all the three pages, and then he said, I get it. It's a how-not-to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it, certainly the nation has been pretty successful, although um, are you still operating in the red?
2: <laughs> Politically, they say we are, as you know the last 3 years after after 135 years of losing money the last 3 years we seem to have taken in a little more money than we spent but postal rates are going up and paper costs are going up and you know part of the energy in this magazine and the the rapid rise in the number of subscribers we have we had 20,000 when i got here in 19 19- 78 and uh last year we ended the year with 184,000 and a few hundred more subscriber paying subscribers so uh, that's huge for us but uh a lot of people think that that's because of uh the war and what's happening in the White House. And for years we had a bad joke, if it's bad for the country, it's good for the nation. And so I tell people when they ask, how are you doing, I say, better than ever, because the country is in a lot of trouble these days. And I think there's a little truth to that, but I think it's more of a dialectical relationship, and and the magazine has a lot of momentum going, and that's going to keep on regardless of what happens nationally and internationally. And as I say, in a matter of opinion, we would hate to be in the position of rooting for the re-election of a Bush-type administration in order to keep our numbers up.
0: I've heard that attitude on the part of some people on the left. What what would you say about that?
2: Well, i say that the truth of that is that it does concentrate the mind. And that, especially people who aren't in the great urban centers, who count on journals like The Nation as a lifeline, they benefit from knowing that they're not alone. And it is a source not just of solace but of a political energy to them to know that there, that there is a, not just a publication out there but a whole community of people out there who are, who feel the way they do. Having said that. First of all, the magazine has a literary section, an editorial section, it runs essays, is a cultural commentator, and politics is one very important part of the mix. It's not the only part of the mix. Also, this is a magazine without a party line. So while people say journals of opinion as a class, you don't have to take them seriously because they preach to the converted, they preach to the choir, I always... Say to that, hey, listen, you know, it is true that we don't give equal time to Democrats and Republicans on the one hand. On the other hand, I believe there's more space between our writers on a whole set of issues than there is between the Democratic and Republican parties. For example, our radical feminist uh, writers and readers believe that pornography ought to be banned. Our civil libertarian readers believe that nothing ought to be banned. And then our radical feminist civil libertarian readers uh, have differences among themselves about it. Um, Our top-down socialist planner readers have very different views from our bottom-up anarchist Luddite green readers. Our human rights interventionist writers and readers have a very different approach to problems in bosnia and in in the middle east than our pacifist readers do so so there's a set of debates that you get or arguments or a conversation that goes on in a journal like this that uh just is missing from the mainstream media and that comes partly from our place on the political spectrum it comes partly though from the fact that we're independent and not part of some huge conglomerated homogenized media be more.
0: There are a lot of times when you talk about conservative opinion journals as well, including uh, the National Review, with even some measure of respect, and their journal of opinions as well, but aside from the obvious political differences, are there different ways that they deal with this issue of objectivity or discourse than a journal like yours, or The Nation in particular?
2: Yes and no. I mean, first of all, It's hard to generalize, because the National Review is different from Weekly Standard, and that's different from human events and all that, on the one hand. On the other hand, as I do talk about in in naming names, I had Rich Lowry, who is the editor of uh, National Review, who came after O'Sullivan, who came after Buckley, uh, to speak up at Columbia Journalism School, where I teach. And he began by saying that uh, National Review, like the nation, is in business to make a point and not a profit. So you have that in common. Mm -hmm. Secondly, he identified areas where we happen to have policy agreements, for example, on the decriminalization of drugs. But when you get into the business of discourse, I think as a general proposition, the magazines of the right have a lot of trouble with what they believe to be cultural relativism, and they think that, you know, the left and journals of the left, because we tend to support choice and gay rights and a whole set of social and cultural rights that they find anathema, they see that as a flight from virtue, Whereas a magazine like ours tends to be much more pluralistic and open and will print articles by folks who are religious believers on the, le- on the left or not the left. And I would think they would have trouble printing articles by free thinkers who don't believe.
0: If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're speaking with Victor Navasky. Publisher of The Nation magazine, about his new book, A Matter of Opinion.
2: If you take the fundamental, the core beliefs right now in political terms, the, you know, the left tends, to, and the nation certainly identifies with the, with the dispossessed and disinfected. Now, the right may say they do, but their way of helping is to give tax relief to the rich. Right. and say well that will stimulate the economy and ultimately poor people will benefit from it but it's a very different orientation a magazine like the nation the nation in fact believes that you know in a classic sense government is there to help people do what they can't do for themselves and so we support welfare legislation like social security we support national health care a comprehensive national health care plan we have to support single payer plan the right these days tends to believe in small government. The less government, the better. The era of big government is over, to quote Bill Clinton, who, who you know was a centrist president. Those are core differences. Then you get into things like the war in Iraq. And there it's very interesting because there's been a split-off on the right. And you have a, a, a relatively new conservative magazine, The American Conservative, that Pat Buchanan... <clears throat> uh... he recently i think stepped aside as editor but he launched it as editor and they oppose the war in iraq and half of their argument is similar to the liberal argument that it's a you know it's a pragmatic mistake and all that but they do it from a an isolationist starting point and we do it from a very different starting point a, a real presumption against military solutions to political problems a, um, a, a belief that you can't, that it's a contradiction in terms to impose a democracy, uh, an old-fashioned, sentimental belief in the United Nations, and... Uh,
0: <laughs> sentimental?
2: Well, it's it, people will say it's sentimental because of all the problems that the UN has in the real world. I understand those problems. Nevertheless, I think if you want to deal with international issues like immigration and and terrorism so-called terrorism you need an international agency to do it and the UN is sort of the only game in town and it would behoove us to pay our dues on time and work very hard to help uh transform it into the organization that we all hope it will be and rather than to spend half our time denouncing it and attacking its Inspectors before they finished their job in Iraq, they turned out to be on the right track and Of course here 's a case where, in a matter of opinion, I deal with the the mainstream press, which is basically the megaphone of the powers that be and so to me, the unprecedented business of the President of the United States attacking a United Nations process that was ongoing before they came out with their report, even. And the press, instead of questioning the propriety of that, just repeating it and giving it national resonance on television and and amplifying it, it seemed to me that was a real default. So today you get this debate about the Downing Street Memorandum and all of that. Well, the push to go to war was something which was anyone who was reading the papers at the time and watching television on time knew was there. Yeah, it always
0: surprises me, you know, when it several years later it comes out, my goodness, Colin Powell was lying I mean, certainly when I watched Colin Powell testifying in front of the U.N., it was clear to me that he was lying. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. But, but, you know, when you mention the mainstream press, that's a point I wanted to come to also, because you say in the book that you say you knew that when you took over the, the editorialship of The Nation, that if we ever published anything that it could appear in the New York Times magazine, we would not be doing our job. I wonder if you could explain that.
2: Well, I tell a story in there of an emblematic experience I had when I worked at the New York Times magazine, which by the way, I was I was very grateful for all the learning that I experienced at the Times and but one of the ways it worked was, you know, we would suggest article ideas or the editor of the magazine would, would ask us to suggest writers for ideas that he had and one of them, I worked there in the early seventies. And one day, the editor of the magazine, who was a great editor, I politically had deep disagreements with him, but nevertheless, he was a terrific craftsperson. He said, you know, a lot of young people are throwing around the word fascist and calling the police fascist pig. He said, well, why don't we do an article on what is fascism? And he asked me to suggest some writers for such an article, which is a good idea for, for an article. He said, you know, they don't remember what it really is and all that so I gave my list the way it worked was you gave a list of three or four different writers and I would always try and add one new writer to the list of familiars that they had because it was easy for the familiars to get through but the familiars always had sort of establishment perspectives so I put on the list of someone I'd gone to Swarthmore College with Phil Green who by the way in later years when I came to The Nation I put him on The Nation editorial board who's a great socialist intellectual specializes in intellectual history and at the time was teaching government at smith college he may have been the chairman of the government department or not so i just put down his name and i put in parenthesis government department smith college if he was the chair i put that in uh, specialist and what. so the editor of the magazine said, okay let's try this guy green he wasn't familiar with his orientation anything. and phil is a very good writer and a very thoughtful person so he turned in a quite brilliant essay on what is fascism but in the course of it he said and he made all the distinctions you'd have to make. And the word is being misused by the new left in this way, that way, and the other way. He said, But in certain parts of the Deep South these days, if you're black, it is like living in a fascist society because, you know, they don't have black counsel. There, there are no black faces in the courtroom. There are no blacks on juries. No black judges at that point. And so he had a real point to make. So the editor came back. The article came in and the first judgment is, do you use it or not? And the second question is, what changes if any do you want? And it was too good an article not to use, but the editor came back to me and he said to me, you know, come on, he can't say that about blacks in the South. I mean, where are blacks being turned into soap dishes and sent to extermination camps? And so he said, go back and tell him to spare us the letters to the editor that we're going to get, making these obvious points. So, So Phil... Taking into account the editor's objections, went back and redrafted the article to take those complaints into account, and nevertheless, still came up with his formulation because of his definition of fashion. And then the article came through again, and then the editor had more questions, so then it went back again. So when the article finally appeared...
0: Without backing down, he dealt without with
2: Without backing down. But when the article finally appeared... It was slightly, in my view, slightly off-kilter because so much time was taken anticipating and responding to, intelligently responding to questions, that the main point, it wasn't lost, but it was burdened by this attempt to answer the conventional wisdom. So what I meant when I said, you know, anything that can appear in Times Magazine doesn't belong to nation, it's an overstatement, but it's basically that First of all, part of the job of publications like this is to print things that you won't find in the mainstream media, not just because you won't find them there, but because they're important to hear, and you don't find them. So we don't need to duplicate what they already do. But part of it was, I have another section where I talk about, uh, in a matter of opinion, where I talk about how every magazine has an ideal reader. You know, Playboys is the young man about town. Red Books is the young married woman. Seventeens uh, is the teenage girl. And I said at the New York Times, the ideal reader is what used to be called the reasonable man or the member of the League of Women Voters. But it really is the publisher of the Times. And I don't mean that he dictates what you can say or not. But if you vary from his assumptions, you're going to have trouble getting your piece in there, if you make them your assumptions. For example, if you assumed that this was the time when black nationalism was coming up and black is beautiful and Stokely Carmichael and black power, all that was coming up, the Times Magazine could run a piece by Stokely Carmichael making the case for black power. You'd have to fight to get it in, but it could run that without a problem because... It's labeled. This is a guy who's off to the side and, and is out of the mainstream, and he's gonna, you're going to hear his case. But if you write an article assuming that black power is a good thing and don't make the case, then it will be turned down. Whereas if you write an article assuming what so-called reasonable people assume— Uh, i.e., the publisher's assumptions, whether it's about black power or public education or that voting is a good thing. You know, the editor of The Progressive believed voting was a bad thing because of the, the way the system is rigged. You couldn't easily get that in there. So when I talk about ideology and the media in the book, what I say is that people, if they want to put down the nation, It's not just that they call us Stalinist, or we've been called everything from Stalinist to neo-Stalinist to anti-Semitic to Zionist, but the real way they put you down is they say you're ideological. And, And what I say is, yes, we are ideological, but so is the National Review. They have the ideology of the right, and we have the left. But so is the New York Times. So are the networks, and so are Time and Newsweek. They have the ideology of the center. And it is part of the ideology of the dissenter to deny that you have any ideology. So that's also what I meant, to get back to your, your good question. We should be doing things that you can't find in the conventional medium.
0: Right. We interviewed Howard Friel, who wrote the book Record of the Paper, and he goes back to the Vietnam War years in analyzing both reportage and editorial page to make exactly the same point. He shows that the New York Times... The idea of staying in the center, he says, is confused for objectivity, but is yes. not the same thing as objectivity.
2: No, it's a, sp- it's a spurious narrative neutrality that gives the illusion of fairness and objectivity, and it has nothing to do with it. You know, it's, it's interesting. At the Democratic convention in Boston, I went up, I went to a panel at the Kennedy School where they had all of the television anchors Jennings, Brokaw, rather. Judy Woodruff, and they had Jim Lehrer. And someone got up in the audience after the, they made their presentations and said, why do you think young people say they get their news from John Stewart rather than network television? And all of the anchors gave the same answer, sort of, uh, which was because young people are too stupid to understand that the difference between satire and news. And then they quickly went and said, but you do have a point that they don't watch the nightly news, and and they started talking about how they could improve their programs to or manipulate their programs in order to attract younger viewers. And I'm sitting there thinking, hey, just a minute. The reason young people watch John Stewart, A, is because he's very funny, but B, because you all on this platform pretend that you don't have any politics. And you go through this ritual of narrative neutrality of you know that you appear to be fair, you appear to be balanced, you appear to be centrist, you appear to be asking the same tough questions to both sides. John Stewart, on the other hand doesn't go through that pretense. Everything he says is aimed at exposing hypocrisy. And that's what I think not just young people, but his audience identifies with about him. Well, that same thing that happens on television happens in print in the center media.
0: We're speaking with Victor Novoski, publisher of The Nation magazine, about his new book, A Matter of Opinion. Yeah, you make a quote from Andrew Kopkind uh, that you recount where he said, It's not about the politics. In other words, that the nation, it's not a question of that the nation has a certain kind of politics, which right. it does, but that it's about telling the way it is and why. Yes,
2: yes, very important. And, uh, and the other part of that is that the very fact that magazines like The Nation, And I would say the magazines of the right national review and others we are, frankly, we're open about our political values. The fact that we're open about them is what makes it easier for the reader to deal directly with the political argument that we're making. They know where we're coming from. So they can they can take it or leave it. Based on the logic of the argument, the quality of the reasoning, the you know, the moral stance that's taken, the evidence that's adduced. Whereas, if you pretend that you have no ideology, that's to me more <laughs> insidious.
0: I was also struck, however, by uh, the change. I mean, Philip Green's article, which sounded really wonderful. In fact, I intend to go to the library and read it. Yeah. I'm not sure it would be possible today. I mean, I was struck, for example, between the contrast between that art- article and more recent articles like Michael Ignatieff's article earlier mm-hmm. in the Iraq War yeah. and just a few weeks, uh, Lelyfeld's article that seriously discussed justifications for using torture. Yeah. Do you think Green's article could find its way into the Times today? I I do. Well, that's great. You know, I'd like to move to The Nation now. You've told us what you will publish, um, but you also mentioned something that you didn't want to publish, and I guess I had a question about that. Sure. Sure. Just before the Clinton impeachment hearings, you got a call from someone who told you that he had personal knowledge of Henry Hyde having an affair with the wife of a friend. And Hyde was then the Republican congressman who was about to chair the House Judiciary Committee, which was about to go after Clinton for his um, uh, peccadilloes, let's say. Now, his story checked out. You know, you looked into it long enough, I guess, to see that— Yet you decided not to run the story. It was eventually run by Salon.com. Yes. Why didn't you run the story? Why was that not appropriate for the nation? Well,
2: first of all, this was a decision which, you know, I don't do the day-to-day editing these days. Katrina Vanderhuvel does. And this was a decision on which she and I agreed, but not everyone in our vicinity agreed. I think Katha Pollitt, who writes this great column for the magazine. Had she been here, I think she would have said, hey, they do it to us all the time. This is hypocritical of him, and uh, we ought to catch him on it. But my feeling was that we shouldn't be in the business of doing what they do just because they do it, and that a, a man's and a woman's personal life, unless they are out there crusading Hypocritically, which he hadn't been doing on that very issue, is not relevant to his judgment about whether or not the president of the United States, and how he conducts himself should impeachment hearings begin, whether the president ought to be impeached or not. You know, it's a judgment call.
0: But he did go after uh, the president, didn't he? Pardon me? He did go after the president.
2: Oh, he did. He did. Again, this is in advance of all of that. Mm-hmm. But do you attack him? for his private life, or not. And that's the judgment we made, that it was not appropriate. And in my view, it wasn't appropriate for them to go at, They claimed to be going after Clinton on grounds of perjury, but they really were going after him because he had this uh, affair. And, you know, I, in my view, terrible judgment done on the part of the president, bad husband, that's between him and Hillary. And, and indiscipline, it's not something you impeach a president for. And by the same token, uh, I didn't feel it was our job to to get into the private lives of public people unless there is a direct hypocrisy in the way. If he were crusading against adultery, for example, and trying to pass legislation, and then it turned out he was an adulterer, yeah, that is a direct newsworthy thing. You know, we may have been wrong on it, but i that was the reasoning at the time. And subsequently, we recently ran a piece about an advisor to the Federal Drug Administration that did go into the private life of this advisor who has all kinds of terrible social, political views on matters ranging from choice to things that the magazine finds anathema. Katrina did it, and there was enthusiasm for running it. It was a very powerful piece, and it got picked up all over the country. But it's something which, if I had been sitting in her chair, I said to her, I don't know that I would have run it. And there were other editors who had questions about it, because you could have run the same piece without getting into the detail about the man's personal life. But those are the kinds of judgments you have to make day in, day out, when you're running a weekly magazine. And one of the good things about about this play. One of the first things I did, by the way, when I became editor in 1978 at The Nation, was I moved the letters page from the, it used to be a half page opposite the classified ad section in the back. I moved it to page two, the first thing you see when you open the cover of the magazine, and gave the writer of the original article the right to respond to the letter writer in the same issue. On the theory that We want the readers to be feel that they are part of a conversation we're having because we don't know that we're always right in the judgments that we make. And in fact, at the beginning, we don't do it anymore. But at the beginning, I put down an edict that we would print no puff letters, that no letters that oh, what a great job you're doing. We'll just we'll print only letters that question what we're doing, so we can stimulate the conversation. We we stopped doing that three quarters of the way through because. It began to be a little depressing (laughs) and one-note, and there was a lot of carping in there, and so so we decided to we now try to reflect the mail we get on the letters page rather than have a presumption against printing positive mail. So, and both of those are argue are defensible policies, by the way. So.
0: Right, and, and in fact, I think they really do show up, the difference between uh, a progressive magazine like yours and the conservative magazines that probably would publish some salacious details of somebody that they want. Th- I mean, they certainly engage in character assassination. and. W-
2: well, the whole, I mean, again, you have to look very closely to see what they do, but the whole Troopergate set of accusations against Clinton, which led to the impeachment it wasn't that he had an affair with this woman paula jones but that she then sued and all of that came about because of the american spectator magazine which is a right wing magazine heavily subsidized by scafe and uh, right wing philanthropists as it were and they zeroed in on these allegations about clinton's sex life and it, it was that that led to, to the impeachment. So, uh, yes, it's a different orientation. On the other hand, Salon uh, is not a right-wing
0: mm-hmm, that's true.
2: website. If anything, it, it's over there in the liberal left, and uh, and they made a different judgment than we made.
0: That was Victor Navasky talking with Writer's Voice in 2006. He passed away this week at the age of 90. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. I'm your host, Francesca Rihanna.